0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the InFocus podcast. I'm your host G Sampath. The Education Ministry has released the pre-draft of the National Curriculum Framework for School Education or NCF 2023 for public feedback and comments. The document which was last revised in 2005 has a critical role to play in determining pedagogical approaches and how textbooks are designed. Some key recommendations of NCF 2023 that have made the headlines include board exams twice a year, a semester system for class 12, and giving students the choice to pursue a mix of courses from science, humanities, and commerce rather than splitting them into exclusive streams at the secondary stage. So what are the implications of the changes proposed by the NCF 2023? Are they what the Indian school system needs right now? How will they get reflected in the schooling experience of students going forward? We get into the details of this national curriculum framework document in this episode of InFocus. And we have with us Professor Anita Rampal, former Dean Faculty of Education at Delhi University. She was also chairperson of the NCERT textbook development teams for the primary stage. Professor Rampal, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Good morning.
0: So, Professor Rampal, to start with, uh, I just thought you could, if you could, talk a little bit about your experience before we get into the details of twenty uh, NC of twenty twenty three. Uh, you were part of the last revision uh, which happened in two thousand five. Can you talk a little bit about you know what it was like and how it's done so that the listeners get a sense of how how it sort of works?
1: Yes. Um. Last time in two thousand five, when we had a new curriculum framework, we it you know the first process is that there is a team that the NCRT sets up in uh, trying to develop the basic framework, the basic guidelines to what is it that we are looking at. And how is it different from what has existed? So I think that's important that, you know, the framework actually spells out what is the kind of vision and how we want to do it. And it's not details. It doesn't come into any kind of curricular details because that is left to the states and to the NCRT to follow up on. So we did this. And then following that, there were teams that got made, which then at the NCRT level made Uh, syllabi, And there again, we tried to follow, for instance, the thrust was on connecting learning with children's lives and diverse lives and also making it a socialist, a social constructivist approach, which means that learning is that is I mean, that is what our theories tell us that children learn as a process of interacting with each other. So that's where the social comes in, because one child's doubt and another child's uh, curiosity and another child's uh, exploration, all this adds to how uh, all of them learn much better than rather than being alone as individual learners, staring at a board or staring at a screen. And so how do you bring in a certain way of understanding disciplines Even bridging these uh, across disciplines, not having rigid boundaries, so at least up to the elementary stage, which is class one to eight, we tried to have an interdisciplinary approach. uh, At the primary level, environmental studies and one such thing where it's not science or social studies or environment education. And that's always been a challenge because people are not used to looking at things across disciplines and working together, more through a thematic approach rather than topics that come from disciplines. So that was the challenge. And then the committees made syllabi, uh, and after that, textbook committees, which were different, then made textbooks according to the plan and according to guidelines. So the, this is an open uh, frame which goes to all the states. In fact, it's approved by the CABE committee, the Central Advisory Board. And then states can work on it or, you know, take from, from, uh, from it what they want and what they need in terms of looking at their own syllabi and textbooks.
0: So it, it, it sort of, it, it gives a broad guideline for the syllabus on the basis of which textbooks would be framed.
1: But Yeah, broad guidelines on the learning process, uh, on the learner, on how you cannot just look at uh, a learner from a very narrow, urban, uh, uh, privileged home, as many of our syllabi or textbooks do. So what does diversity mean? What does disparity mean? How do we look at different lives? You know, all these things, this kind of thinking is reflected in the framework. And it then goads you into how do you look at your syllabi. Don't look at it in a very conventional way. Look at it from different lives. Look at it in that sense.
0: Right. So we had this new uh, national education policy, which was released in 2020. Uh, and now we have this national curriculum framework. So w- what exactly is the relationship between uh, these two documents? Does the national curriculum uh, framework necessarily follow uh, from the national education policy?
1: It does in some specific ways, one, in terms of the structure, you know, the school restructuring that the policy has spoken of, uh, in terms of the different stages, and then it takes on uh, some ideas of what the policy suggests, in terms of giving a broader spectrum of courses to students, um, and working in an interdisciplinary way, but that, as I've said, has always been a challenge, and we don't see much of that in the curriculum framework.
0: Okay. okay. So now this pre-draft version of the NCF, which is in the public domain, uh, we're just going through this. I mean, it seems very high concept. It makes all the right noises about developing good human beings uh, who are capable of rational thought, uh, who have compassion, empathy, courage, resilience, scientific temper, uh, inclusiveness, and so on. And then, I mean, this is coming just a, a few few days or weeks after we've had all that uh, controversy about uh, deletions from NCRT textbooks, uh, which might give the uh, sort of a contrarian uh, impression to these goals. So what role does the, uh, does the NCF play in translating all these lofty goals uh, into reality?
1: Uh, you know, the NEP policy also has a lot of this lofty uh, rhetoric, I might say. And in some worrying notions, because whenever they want to talk of values, you know, uh, right in the last curriculum framework also, constitutional values are upfront, And in anything that we do, whether we design a teacher's education course or we design a curriculum or textbook, that is what we have to remember. And uh, also the Right to Education Act, which is a fundamental right. Unfortunately, the policy... Contradicts that in many ways, so it just doesn't talk about this. Just mentions it once and forgets about it, and all the other proposals actually contradict the right. So the this curriculum framework also does like, that. I, I'm sorry.
0: Common... What what uh, can you give an example of what a- aspect of this policy contradicts the right to education? That's a that's a serious uh, point.
1: Yes, uh, the right to education talks of a uh, good quality education a school in the neighborhood of the child and teachers well qualified uh, for eight years 6 to 14 years and it talks of not uh, you know detaining children etc so what this policy talks of is multiple Uh, ways of, you know, multiple modes of education, in which it talks of the open school, it talks of lots of private players coming in. And it very clearly says, the focus is not on inputs, but the focus is going to be on learning outcomes. Now, this itself tells us very clearly, that when you say multiple pathways, and you say open school is one of them, that contradicts the right to education. The right to education said a good functioning school in the neighborhood, a regular school, not an open school, which means you sit at home and you get materials from the National Open School and you don't have a teacher. So, you know, all these things, there are many things right at the beginning which contradict the Right to Education Act. And then it uses the word universalized education, which is gone once it's a fundamental right, there is no attempt to universalize. I mean, from 1st of April 2010, every child has a fundamental right to education. So governments can't tell us that they're still trying to universalize education. So the entire discourse tells us that it's forgotten about the RTE. And also the second thing that Whenever you look at any discussion on values in the policy, there may be 20 values listed. They start with what they call human values, ethical values, and at the end, the last three or four are the constitutional values of equity, fraternity, democracy. You know, it's always that in the policy. And in fact, they even start with cleanliness, you know, so they start with things like cleanliness and sacrifice. So you can see what the signaling is, the constitution is, values are always at the end, and whenever constitutional values are, uh, the rights are mentioned, it comes along with duties, as if rights are not really of importance, or they can be tempered with uh, these other notions of human values or duties, etc. So that is worrying right for any educationist, as soon as you look at the document, right, especially when a long struggle has led to a right to education act after sixty years of the constitution,
0: right. I mean, I mean, in a school education document, having a value such as sacrifice is a bit concerning. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that maybe at a later stage. Now, come, going to the actual nitty gritty. Uh, of this whole document, something which uh, would be of interest to parents all over the country and students who are in class 11-12. It is to do with this uh, change in structure from 10 plus 2 to 5 plus 3 plus plus 4. Is it a good idea? What do you think?
1: No. No. Uh, Because uh, one, just changing structure on paper and then suddenly asking schools to restructure. Schools have Uh, you know, have structured in terms of their teachers, in terms of their classrooms, their facilities, in a certain way. This now says that the first two years of primary school, that is one and two, is going to be clubbed with three years of early childhood education. And the early childhood education is looked at by the Anganwadi workers you know so uh, just trying to club this and say that now a foundational stage is going to be uh, worked on uh, in fact i mean we know that we want a strong icds program we need an education component because that is right now focused only on a nutrition component but uh, that means a, a rigorous and a long program of ensuring the uh, what kind of training can be done how how the anganwadi workers can be really inducted into the program of education, which has been a challenge all along, even though it's a, an amazing and large program of ICDS. But clubbing this with one or two, in fact, then dumbs down the one and two, you know, because it uh, the focus then is a foundational literacy and numeracy. And as educationists, we are not happy to hear things being dumbed down, Even if it's for the poorest and the most disadvantaged child, children anywhere learn much more than just literacy and numeracy. Children's curiosity around the world, around them, children's understanding of the social relationships and social world. Uh, Sorry to interrupt
0: you, uh, Professor Ampal. How is is there a dumping down? Can you just explain? Like you are saying that pre-nursery, nursery, kindergarten... And class one two are going to be clubbed together. So how does this clubbing together of one and two uh, with this result in dumbing down? What happens? Because
1: there? when you see the curriculum, you see that it talks of only foundational literacy and numeracy. I'm saying we want critical literacy and critical numeracy. Uh, you know these words in it in the education discourse mean something. How do you do this? And we want a lot of environmental understanding and, you know, environmental studies and understanding of plants and animals and the world around you and the social relations around you. That is what a a curriculum for primary school is meant to be, though one and two is meant to be uh, a, a focus mostly through language and arithmetic. But three, four and five is meant to really understand how children's concepts develop. In fact, children's concepts develop even before they start going to school. This national curriculum framework says that concepts develop at the middle stage. You know, again, that's a dumbing down. When the child talks of water, even before she can utter the word water, there's a concept of water that the child brings with her. And that is our challenge of how do you really understand children's conceptual development. But if you say that concepts develop at age 12, that's what the curriculum framework says at some point. Uh, that means you're just dumbing down. You're just sort of saying, OK, do these activities, do this. And we know what this minimalist kind of understanding is and how it's being done even at, at present. So uh, uh, I'm saying that what happens is rather than saying that, yes, it's an inclusive and an equitous curriculum, which understands disparities, but children who come from uh, a back, you know, very disadvantaged homes to bring a lot of knowledge with them. They may not read and write, but that does not stop them from thinking. That does not stop them from building their ideas, from understanding concepts of debt or death or uh, m- m- trees and plants around them, which even children from protected homes may not do. They need Children from protected homes need a textbook and a picture showing them how many legs a spider has whereas children pre and very familiar with the natural world around them know these things much better. But developing curricula, which claim that concepts develop later, you focus and even the term preparatory stage. So class three, four and five is called preparatory stage. Preparatory for what? We never think any stage has to be preparatory for anything later. A child is Developing at every stage, and we have to do justice to that potential and that possibility of so children in this, so this dumbed down, uh,
0: in this dumbed down, uh, version, uh, like w- w- what would they not be learning as opposed to what they should have been learning if it wasn't being dumbed down?
1: They would not be, uh, I mean, the curriculum would, so that's what I'm trying to say. That what happens is when a curriculum framework comes out like that, and you start thinking of developing books and so you're mostly thinking of, in, in a way, children who are coming from, you know, backgrounds which may be disadvantaged. And so you think that you can keep that, but private schools do what they want. And private schools are not always, I mean, when we say the word private doesn't mean there are the largest segment of private schools are low cost private schools, which are worse than government schools. I mean, their facilities and their teachers qualifications are not as good as government schools. But what happens is that they tend to use the books they want, they tend to do what they want, they tend to get children to memorize, and they think they're doing something more advanced, and also the more affluent uh, private schools. But here, if we are limiting ourselves and saying that you know we will do only these activities like even in the language the foundational literacy it talks of something which is not the way children learn language there has been a whole understanding in the last few years that children don't first learn uh, alphabets and the sounds of alphabets and then learn words and it doesn't go as linearly as that you know there's an emergent literacy when children learn it's a whole language approach And it's not. But this uh, uh, curriculum framework says that they first learn to decodify the alphabets and the sounds along with that. And then they will learn to read with meaning, which is completely not how reading happens. That's the problem in the pedagogy of language that exists in our country, why children cannot read or cannot confidently even write the language that they speak very well and they think very deeply in. Uh, because you think that meaning comes later and meaning does not come later. You read only because you make sense of things. And uh, so I'm just saying that this approach to calling it a foundational stage, limiting things, not doing uh, things in environmental studies that you normally should be doing at age at grade three, four, and five, uh, and assuming that uh, that can be more challenging concepts can be done later is showing a paucity of the way it has been pedagogically structured and the understanding of how children learn. That is a problem.
0: Right. So so you're basically uh, pointing to a number of problems uh, pedagogically uh, speaking uh, with the foundational stage and also uh, with the way the entire uh, breaking up of the structure from 10 plus 2 to 5 plus 3 uh, plus three is going to change uh, the whole thing uh, resulting in some form of dumbing down uh, pushing back advanced uh, not really advanced conceptual uh, work to a later stage now coming to uh, the secondary stage uh, is it any better because we have these recommendations we referred to earlier where unlike earlier classes 9 to 12 are going to be uh, interconnected in terms of you know uh, this, the subjects and curricular areas and you know uh, choice where they can pick up from humanities, arts and science and do a mix of courses. Uh, They're supposed to do 16 courses from eight curricular areas and give eight board exams. Now, is this uh, a better system than what we have right now?
1: Uh, I think we should remember that uh, in those countries which actually are known for the quality of their education, say the Scandinavian countries, Finland, for instance, is uh, often quoted what happens is that when they change their curriculum, they took at least 10 to 15 years trying to change it in a in a way which could then not privilege urban uh, students from rural students and how do you make a more inclusive curriculum and how do you build an understanding and a commitment and you convince, you build opinions, even of teachers and teacher educators, and you prepare the system. You prepare teacher educators of how this is going to run. Uh, but. And the idea is that you keep all children together doing similar things for 10 years, because those who come from a disadvantaged background might need to be together with others and give them enough time before you start testing and throwing them out into more less challenging streams you know this tracking and streaming and vocational education which everyone knows is a second grade status for a child telling the child that you're no good in what is known as academic knowledge so all these hierarchies are society itself is so is divided into so many hierarchies and the school system if it starts doing this early that's not good for most children in fact all children so, so you're saying uh,
0: this this nine to class nine to twelve where you have eight curricular areas instead of the science arts and the commerce teams it is going to lead to uh, some kind of weeding out of the poor uh, kind of a yes thing? like how how do how do you how do you say that that's going to happen
1: yeah i'll tell you so our policies till now have said anna curriculum framework 2005 have held that all children should be doing up to class 10 similar courses. And we design courses to assume that there are all children here. So not make them in such a way that they only meant for someone who's going into a master's in that discipline, but for everyone. That is our challenge, you know, the, system, the systemic challenge. And that uh, giving options in which students can go in for vocational courses. I prefer the word work-based and uh, because vocational is has connotations of being low status, and also it's tied to a vocation, it's tied to caste, and it's tied to very limited kinds of skills which go with that vocation. Uh, as an educationist and as a person who looks at education for democracy, we underline that work-based courses, which is comes from our legacy and a history of Nahi Talim and the Gandhian system of education where craft is supposed to be the medium of education, productive work. Uh, that can be for everyone. In fact, it should be for everyone. That is how the head, heart, and hand work together right from the earlier years right from primary years whatever you're doing you're doing science you're doing doing you should be work-based science you know what is it that you're doing because that also then connects with your life around you it doesn't put you into silos or tell you that you only work with your brain and not with your heart or your hand and that is the kind of course that we need to work on up to class 10 for all subjects, and then class 11 and 12, which offer these options for anyone. A person who wants to go in later for engineering or medicine also should be having some work-based courses. But that is what doesn't happen when we call it vocational courses, and they're designed so poorly that they don't even make you think. And they limit it to what is called skills. They're not designed by educationists, they're designed by the industry. So uh, that has to change. But that doesn't change here. What happens is we give all this rhetoric, we say there are going to be so many choices. I mean, instead of six courses right now for grade 10 board, the student has to do 16 courses. Now, uh, why does this number, how is that going to help a student, more so where are the teachers going to come. Right now, our schools don't even offer the kinds of options that a student can get. Uh, One third of schools from Delhi government offer science. The others don't even offer science. Uh, Many schools don't offer commerce. So what does it mean to make all these claims, but not link it with the system, not see whether we have teachers who understand and who are prepared for this or we have enough teachers for this. So what will happen is that those who come from, uh, you know, uh, uh, don't have that kind of capital and social capital and cultural capital to support them in the homes and in the schools and the privilege that helps that comes with that, will be left with courses of all kinds. I mean, look at the courses here, the interdisciplinary courses, uh, uh, which come later, which come uh, even in grade 11 and 12, have something called home science have something called indian knowledge systems you know i mean all kinds of courses sports and games so that doesn't give you the quality in any area that we think a student needs and deserves and has the right to get
0: right so you're saying on the one hand uh, there is this weeding out of uh, the marginalized students uh, in terms of what subjects uh, they can study and so on by giving them a choice earlier in the education program rather than having a common system where all of them learn all of what's on offer till class 10. That is one. And secondly, you are saying because the schools don't have the infrastructure, uh, the variety of teachers and uh, teaching, teaching infrastructure to offer 16 courses. I mean, science, arts, humanities, and you've got eight curricular areas, I think, which yes. are much much more diverse. And as a result, uh, many of the students who may be going to a low-cost uh, private school, they might end up earning those credits from Indian knowledge system and home science and stuff, uh, whereas the ones who are are better off might be doing science and biology and physics. Is that what you anticipate?
1: Absolutely. And also that this pushes down the vocational earlier than what our system has normally said should be done. So it pushes it to the ninth rather than the 11th, which is what the policies till now had held. Uh, So that segregation and that stratification uh, will come much early, and we know uh, we don't have to be very inventive to understand what kinds of vocational courses and who is going to be pushed into these.
0: Right now, uh, you uh, you have uh, I mean we have seen in this national curriculum framework there's a lot of great uh, there's much much made of this whole notion of choice for students, which is why uh, which is a justification for having 16 courses and you know so many choices. So from what you're saying, this choice the concept here seems to be a bit of a misnomer
1: yes you know what is what uh, comes up more clearly in the ncf is at the point when it says that it says plays, you know, this grandiose plan is put before you. So uh, I know many middle class parents will are sort of saying, oh, my son wanted uh, physics with uh, art or something like that, history, couldn't do it, etc. So it's that limited group, limited segment of society, which is which thinks that this is going to give them that option. But when you look at 16 courses. Any student doing 16 courses for a board exam is going to be challenged. Uh, And uh, the other is that when you look at the fact when they say that, you know, actually, this will not be, uh, you know, it it actually says this, that to have a reasonable choice, uh, it says that we must remember that To begin with, schools must offer at least one curricular area from the following category. So it's accepting that most schools will not be able to give this choice. And it's saying that. So it says they may not be in a position to offer these choices of disciplines at uh, these range at grade 11 and 12. So they offer a way out of it, which is which I find most problematic because it says that at least one curricular area from each of the following categories, and they have made these categories. So they call a category called which are the subjects that humanities, social science, science, mathematics, and uh, computing. So these are what are called the academic subjects. The other one, category two, is called interdisciplinary area, where uh, we find that it's mostly. Uh, either commerce or uh, something to do with environment, but mostly a lot coming from what is called the Indian knowledge system. And uh, also uh, things like home science, you know, which which uh, was some years back actually revised and it's now called uh, hu- ecology and, uh, uh, you know, uh, family studies, human ecology and family studies. So attempt was to bring in five domain areas, which also touch upon uh, other work uh, areas, but I have seen and I have written recently about how this runs in a school, because that is considered not an, a major a dominant uh, area. And so it's almost a farce. The exam is a farce. Just look at the question paper and you will see what kind of meaningless information, rote based questions are done. How is a student better prepared to enter, uh, say, uh, an area called hotel management, having done that course uh, is, is a question that needs to be seriously looked at. So these become notional. It's notionally offered, but it's never implemented in a way that actually challenges and gives a student an opportunity. And the third area, the third curricular area is arts or sports or uh, um, or uh, something, or or a course on yoga. So you can see that if a school, and they, make, they can be many schools now, low cost private institutions which come in, uh, which till now could not affiliate to the board, to the CBSC because they couldn't offer to have courses right up to grade 11, 12. Now they can, because they just offer one language. They, the second, they offer some Indian knowledge system, and the third, they offer a game or yoga, and they can happily run a higher secondary course. So the idea is that you give, you so-called dole out a higher secondary certificate, uh, instead of making it I'm not saying we didn't need change. We need drastic change in the way our uh, higher level courses are structured because they don't make sense to most people and they just, as as happens, our assessment system is terrible and they just get away by doing these multiple choice questions or memorizing some information-based question paper. That is not what we need. But instead of giving a much more creative and challenging system, giving students going into any stream an opportunity to understand what interdisciplinarity means and what work-based education means, we are now very conveniently uh, pushing children out into something which will be notional, not serious, almost, uh, uh, you know, almost incidental that you do this course and you get something in hand, you get a grade 12 degree certificate in hand but you really don't know much other than a few things here in language or a right. few things right. there. Professor Rampal, sorry
0: to interrupt you. Yeah, I, I was just going through your your piece for the wire, and and two things struck me. I just wanted to uh, wanted you to come in very quickly on these two before we wind up. Well, one aspect is uh, micromanagement, and the other is extreme centralization. Uh, is on this question of micromanagement, I mean, you you made this point that even time allocations are being given in this national curriculum framework. It's a curriculum framework and it is saying, you can have an assembly of 25 minutes with five minutes to reach the classroom. I mean, does it also spell out how many toilet breaks students are allowed during class hours? <laughs> how this, I mean, where is this coming I mean, from? How is this a curricular framework uh, point?
1: It is just so bizarre that a curriculum framework is more than 625 pages. And it goes into details of every, it's almost spelling out the syllabus, it's spelling out the lesson plan as an illustration, it's spelling out curricular goals and learning outcomes. I mean, what is left for the states to be doing, or even NCRT to be doing, you know, I mean, these are bodies which are meant to be doing this. And looking at this We cannot really tell that people with a lot of experience may be doing this work. Uh, That's only when we go into the nitty gritties, we can uh, tell you that. Uh, You know that this is clearly someone who doesn't understand. You're taking a little from here, you're taking a little from there, but you're putting through. And please remember, it says that nine more volumes have to come. Uh, Nine uh, more volumes over
0: and above the 628 pages.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Please remember that. And each of those volumes is going to be for each of these disciplines, you know, this disciplinary areas, and one on the uh, uh, course, the processes, and uh, so the school processes. So I'm saying that this is an overkill. And this is extremely questionable, because this is centralization to the point that there's something coming right from the center, and not even recognizing that states you know, it's uh, education is a concurrent subject. States need to look at things in their own socio-cultural, economic, historical, political context. That's what education is about. And that if you spell out so much and you micromanage something to this point, it then tends to give legitimacy to everyone trying to just follow this rather than doing their own exercise. And that is what is questioned.
0: So does this centralization also mean uh, an attempt to impose uniformity, Across the states?
1: Yes. In fact, this is exactly what NCF 2005 actually said. It said that this raises a question what is the role of a national curriculum framework, tends to raise doubts and questions about. Uh, uniformity being imposed, it uses that word, imposition of uniformity from the central. And it says that this is not the purpose, this should never be the aim of bringing out a curriculum framework, and that's why it should just be a guideline, a guideline for all those who are going to be engaged in this very challenging, creative, and important uh, process of developing curricula for their state's or for NCRT, and for the CBSE, and uh, uh, their textbooks. So it warns us against this imposition, but this is exactly that. It is exactly such a document, because why do you expect a 600-page, six twenty page document to be giving you such details, spelling out things in such detail?
0: Right. Uh, we're running out of time, Professor Ampal. We have to uh, wrap up now. So I, I take away uh, from your uh, points... Uh, the fact that this is uh, clearly uh, a centralizing, micromanaging, uniformity-imposing document that goes way beyond the ambit of what a national curriculum framework is supposed to be, and besides uh, this aspect of it, there are also a lot of problems in 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 within the domain of what it is supposed to do. The way it is sort of changing the structure from ten plus two to five plus three plus three plus four, uh, without taking into account the infrastructure of our schools, whether schools can offer, do do we have the teachers who can teach uh, 16 different courses uh, from, I don't know, 35 different areas of interdisciplinary uh, work and uh, so on and so forth. So there are a lot of different uh, issues to be debated with this document. It is in the public domain right now. Hopefully there will be a lot more people coming in and talking about it. Thank you so much for your... Uh, Illuminating insights in this podcast, uh, Professor Ampol, pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.